0: We'll be studying a passage that is taught many times is should not be foreign to many of those who've been in church for a while. Now let's just pray for God's blessing before we get into His word. Lord, we do not boast in anything. We do not even boast when we can teach or understand your word, because we we know that it is only because of you that we can understand anything in this book. So we boast in Jesus Christ. We boast in the fact that when we place our faith in Christ, we we receive the Holy Spirit as a down payment of our salvation. That is, we've been sealed for the day of redemption. And it's the Holy Spirit that guides us and gives us wisdom. You give us wisdom. You teach us to love the things that you love and to hate the things that you hate. And yet you're patient with us as we fail daily to fully understand those things. So we now pray for your, for your help. As we study your word, we only want your word. And so in Christ's name we pray, amen. Uh, suffering comes in many different forms. You know, If you uh, consider the, any particular suffering you might be going through at this moment or in this stage of your life, we know that it's going to look many times different from other people's sufferings. There's long-term suffering versus short-term suffering. There is, there is suffering that comes suddenly and suffering that you could kind of predict and, and kind of prepare for. There is suffering that is physical and there is suffering that's emotional. There is suffering that is severe and there is suffering that is minor. But we know that suffering is a reality of life on this earth. And as Christians, we know that as, as fallen, living in a fallen world, as fallen creation and sinful man, we know that suffering should be no surprise to us as we live even a day in this life. So we're going to go to our passage this morning. And our hope and prayer is that as we read through the story of this man who suffered severely for a long time, for much of his life, probably the majority of his life, We should be praying that God will give us wisdom as far as how should we be thinking biblically and thinking wisely and thinking godly about our perspective on all different types of suffering. So let's read our passage this morning, John chapter 5, verse 1 to 14. It says, after these things, there is a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew, Bethesda. Having five porticos, in these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered. Waiting for the moving of the waters, for an angel of the Lord went down for, at certain seasons into the pool, and down at certain seasons into the pool, and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after the stirring up the, of the water, stepped in, and it was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. A man was there who had been ill for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there, he knew and knew that he had already been in a long time in that condition. Jesus said to him, Do you wish to get well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. Immediately this man became well. And picked up his pallet and began to walk. Now it was the Sabbath on that day. So the Jews were saying to the man who is cured, It is the Sabbath and it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. But he answered them, He who made me well was the one who said to me, Pick up your pallet and walk. And so they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Pick up your pallet and walk? But the man who was healed did not know who it was. For Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore, so that nothing worse happens to you. Let's go back to the top of this passage in verse 1. We see it says, after these things. And after these things is literally talking about what just happened in chapter 4. We're going to see this contrast. In chapter 4, there's a royal official who specifically sought out Jesus he heard that Jesus was back in Canaan Galilee and this royal official who might have been even a roman sought out Jesus so that he might he, he might go come to Jesus and plead his case to heal his son who is deathly ill and so we see this royal official who knew who Jesus was who knew what Jesus was capable of at least he heard rumors of what Jesus was capable of and he sought out Jesus just so that he might, Jesus might heal his son. And we see from that story that as Jesus did heal him, he didn't even have to, Jesus didn't even have to visit the son. He just spoke to the man saying, go, your son is healed. That was enough for the man when he returned home and he discovered that his son was healed, for the whole household to believe in Jesus. But it was all because this man sought out Jesus because he heard about this man, Jesus, who could do miracles such as that. And so now we have this direct contrast to one who seeks out Jesus. So now we have an example of where Jesus comes to someone else and they have no idea who he is. Moving on, verses 2 to 4 goes on to say, Now they're in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate. There's a pool called Bethesda. And, and having five porticos, in these lay a multitude of those who were sick. So we see that there is a multitude of sick people. And if your passages has little brackets around it, that simply means for, uh, for in the, our biblical translations, that it might not have appeared in earlier manuscripts or in different manuscripts. And so they put those parts in brackets because it might not be in some translations of the Bibles. And there is no other recording of anything like this in history or throughout scripture. And so we can only assume that may, hopefully this is true. May, uh, that, that they, they, uh, they believed at least that the, an angel would come down at different seasons, and would stir up the water so that the first person that came in would be healed. As we, we can only assume and speculate that this is something that actually happened. Uh, There's nowhere else, like I said, in scripture or in history we could find evidence of this. But this is what the people believed. And so so we have a multitude of people around this pool. And notice that it says the first person that stepped in was the one that was healed in verse 5, uh, or in verse 4. It's whoever then, after stirring up the water, stepped in, that person was made well of whatever disease they were afflicted of. And so now we see that if it is God that's doing this healing, there are still people who are going to be left suffering and sick and injured of various kinds of things. It's not everyone that's going to be miraculously healed. It's the first person that steps in. So we see right away that this is just one of many examples that it's not God's will for everyone to always be healed of their ailments and their injuries and their sicknesses. That we pray for God's help. We pray for God's healing. We we pray for uh, we pray for Him to give us his grace for us to persevere through whatever suffering that we're enduring but there is no promise uh, of escaping suffering in this life the promise for the christian is the suffering that we will escape in eternity when our faith is in solely in christ for salvation that there is an eternal suffering that we should be wary of after this life and that is what we are we are guaranteed to be spared of when our faith is in christ that's that should always be our focus as christians But next, moving on now in verse 5. Now Jesus comes into the picture. When Jesus saw him lying there, uh, a man there who had been ill for 38 years, which would have been most likely the majority of a person's life, they may have lived maybe only around 60 years at that time. This man could have been sick from the day he was born, or he could have been sick as a child, or maybe a little later. But 38 years would have been the majority of his life. Jesus shows his divine knowledge that he sees him lying there and he knew that he had been in this condition for a long time. Jesus didn't need anyone to tell him about this man, who he was or who his parents were. Jesus didn't need his disciples to lead him to this man. Jesus knew divinely, being fully man and fully God, the condition that this man had been in for such a long time. I think uh, the Jesus, when Jesus asked this rhetorical question, after knowing The suffering that this man has endured for 38 years. Do you wish to get well? In verse 7, it says, The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, It's a yes or no question. Right? No, he said, Get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. He knew that the answer was yes. The man knew that Jesus was asking a rhetorical question. because if he could be healed, he would be healed. If he was able to get first in the pool, he would. I think there's a lot of truth in the statement of this man, a reminder of our own sinful nature, of just how often we will deem our own situation more important than other people's, right? That how sad is it that this man, who's ill for 38 years, who, who might have just given up after so over, however many years of trying to get to be first in the pool, Maybe he just gave up. Maybe he gave up after the first year. Maybe he gave up after the first 37 years. We don't know. But it's sad that maybe someone, who else, someone else who was sick or injured didn't look at this man and say, you know what? You go first. That for, after 38 years, no one offered their spot for this man to go in before them. I think there's a lot of truth to that as far as our, in our own sin nature. If we're late to work, we're late to an appointment, we are going to drive faster because we need to get to our appointment. We're going to cut people off because we're in a hurry and not them. That we, we, we will likely view our own personal suffering, our own personal situation more important than someone else's. And many times, if it's up to us, we will get the remedy before them. That was the case for this man. After 38 years of trying to get to the pool, no one had compassion, enough compassion on him to actually help him into the pool so he could get there. 38 years. We see examples of this when there are natural disasters even. When people do unsafe things because they're afraid for their own lives and they'll put others at risk. Uh, because they will deem their own safety more important than other people's safeties. And they'll make rash decisions. They can make selfish decisions. Uh, because at, it's in our own inherent nature to take care of what is ours. Our children, our family. And, and God instilled that in us to, to be uh, protective of our own lives and protective of our families. But there is an amount of selfishness to where we might do things that are detrimental to others. If it means that it means better for us. And that's something that we always need to be praying for. Praying about, where do we find that perfect balance? As every situation is different. So Jesus tells this man, stand up, get up, pick up your pallet and walk. This pallet is—you uh, might think of a yoga mat or something like that. It's really just like a mat that you would sleep on. It's probably made of straw, that it was really light and you could roll up and carry around with you. Uh, that would have been his pallet, most likely. But he tells him, get up, pick up your pallet and walk. And immediately the man became well and picked up his pallet and began. To walk now we see in the next section verses 9 to 13 where now it was the sabbath on that day and so the jews were saying to the man who is cured it, they said it's the sabbath it's not permissible for you to carry your pallet get back down you're breaking the sabbath there's a man who gathered sticks way back in our day in our ancestors day back we could read about it in, in numbers who he was gathering sticks and moses made us stone him to death so please put your mat down get down Because they would have had that story, and many others like it, in their memory banks about why you should not break the Sabbath. There is a healthy fear, for the most part, about honoring the Sabbath, remembering what God has done in six days. But for the Jews, and many times in the Gospels when it says, the Jews, especially in reference when it comes to those who uh, in conversation with Jesus, uh, the, the, usually the gospel writers, especially John, will use the term the Jews, not meaning the Jewish nation as a whole, but the Jewish leaders who are, who are the ones opposing everything that Jesus did at every turn. So when it says the Jews in this case, it's not speaking of all the Jews and they had this uh, general agreement that they didn't like Jesus. Um, but it's more like the Jewish leaders who are there who are always seemed to be at the right place at the right time to oppose everything that Jesus is trying to do in his ministry. But they tell us, man, to lay down. See, in their oral tradition in the Mishnah, uh, they would have had 39 different categories of what qualified as work. And so picking up your mat and carrying it however many feet was one of their 39 categories of you shall not do this on the Sabbath. The reason why they had that is because they felt like the law of Moses wasn't clear enough for them. No one wanted to be stoned to death for gathering sticks or anything else. And, And so what they did is created this oral tradition And it ended up being the very thing that condemned them because Jesus condemned them for it of having all these other laws that they kept to that were stacked on top of the true law of God. Instead of adhering to the law down here, which is the law of God, they adhered to everything else they had piled on top of it. And they had forgotten what it truly meant to obey God and to love him with all their heart, soul, and mind. So that's what they're condemning this man on. It's not so much the law of Moses, but the, the laws that they had put in place by their oral tradition had been in place for 100 years, for hundreds of years by that time. So, it's fascinating as we come into this that the healing was so quick that we see that when this man tried to identify Jesus, he couldn't. Why? Because he slipped away immediately after healing him. And so it wasn't even this man's faith that healed him. It was simply Jesus going to him, speaking to him, get up, pick up your pallet, and walk, commanding him to stand up. He was healed, and Jesus left the scene. And he didn't even know who Jesus was. He didn't have any faith in Jesus at that point. He just knew that he was healed by the mysterious man. Now, later, when the Jesus finds him, this is where we're going to spend the bulk of our study this morning, he comes to him and says something that, would cause him a major dilemma in his life at that point. Being healed, being freed from this 38-year-long, severe suffering in his life, and now all of a sudden it's over. Jesus finds him. Verse 14, afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore, so that nothing worse happens to you. I think the key to understanding this passage is understanding what is this nothing worse that Jesus is warning him to avoid. If we're to read the context of Gospel of John before and after and everything through it, we see that Jesus' ministry focuses on the thing that people should be most worried about is the coming judgment for sinners who have rebelled against God. We see in John 3 that that for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not, what? Perish but have eternal life, that, G, that he told Nicodemus, uh, uh, Nicodemus being a Pharisee, his whole life would have been dedicated to making sure he would see the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, and that everything in his life would be pointed towards, how do I see the kingdom of God, because I want to do that. And Jesus told him something very disturbing that he would have found disturbing. He said, you need to start over. You need to be born again if you want to see the kingdom of heaven. All the things you've done in your life as a Pharisee, Nicodemus, they amount to absolutely nothing. That's the gist of what Jesus is telling him. Later on, John 3, John the Baptist's own testimony was saying that those who do not believe in the Son, the wrath of God still abides on them, meaning that they are simply awaiting for the day of their judgment. For those who do not believe in the Son that was sent from the Father, the wrath of God still remains on them, and that they are awaiting their judgment and condemnation for their sins. This is what Jesus wanted people to be most concerned about. the The nation of Israel in the Old Testament would have understand this; they would have understood the same thing. That what is one thing they didn't want happen to them? They didn't want to die in their sins. They knew that if when they disobeyed God, that the threat from God was, "You will die." Because of these things. And so the, the the concern still remains the same for us today in the church age is our fear to be that we do not die in our sins. And thankfully that through Jesus Christ, by placing our faith in Jesus, even though we still continue to sin daily, Jesus work on the cross, his atoning sacrifice, he is still constantly interceding for us so that as soon as we sin, it's forgiven. That if Jesus were to ever stop working on our behalf, we would be literally damned. But Jesus never stops working for us. He is constantly interceding for us. So that as soon as we sin, it's forgiven. So that we are constantly prepared for the day of our death. That when we appear before the Lord, we will be found righteous. We will be found innocent. Because it was Jesus and his sacrifice for us that gave us righteousness. That made us righteous. This is what Jesus wanted us to be most concerned about. We see it even with the woman at the well, if she wanted this living water, he said, I have living water for you. She said, well, where is this living water? He told her to, to what? Bring her husband. And where she then had to confess that she didn't have one husband, she had five husbands. And the woman that she was with wasn't even her current husband. She had to confess her sins to Jesus before even thinking about receiving this living water. So we see this theme throughout the Gospel of John And even as the Jews question Jesus immediately after this about what gives you the right, Jesus, to do work on the Sabbath. He then tells and makes this statement of when he's explaining the authority that he has from the Father. He says, those who do not believe in him who sent me, they will come into judgment. In verse 24, chapter 5. And this brings us to the reality of suffering and that there are different ways that we can view our suffering in this life. I think there are four major ways that we might, we might have a perspective on our suffering. And we need to discern which ones are biblical and which ones are not. Which ones are godly and which ones are not. I think the first one that we need to uh, first establish is this perspective that our suffering is some form of punishment from God. We know that that cannot be true as Christians, because that's the whole purpose purpose of Christ dying on the cross, is that we are saved from the punishment of our sin. There is no punishment for sin in this life for believers or unbelievers. For the unbelievers, they think they are getting away with their sin, actually, in this time of their life, because if they were not fearful of God's judgment, then they would be believers. But the fact that they have no fear of God's judgment for them, for their sins, they, they really have no guilt for it, they have no concern uh, because they are not currently being punished for their sins. And they shouldn't because God does not punish sin in this life. So it can be very deceiving for those who are unbelievers. They might think that they're getting away with things. For the Christian, we rejoice that as we view our sufferings, view our various kinds of sufferings, We can rejoice in knowing that God is not punishing us for something that we did as a child. God is not punishing us for something we did in a previous relationship. God is not punishing us for, for dabbling in sin that we knew we shouldn't have dabbled in. We know for a fact that our suffering is not a form of punishment from God. So we, we could get that out of the way right now. We read in Romans 2.5 that uh, for the wrath is being stored up for the day of judgment. So God's punishment, his wrath, is being stored up for the day that a person is judged. It's not being, it's not being uh, 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 what's the word, uh, distributed throughout our life. His wrath is not being distributed as we go along in life. Here's some wrath, here's some wrath, here's some wrath. And then on the day of judgment, here's a lot of wrath. It's all the wrath is going to be reserved for the day of judgment. So for unbelievers, even their suffering, it's not a form of punishment. We read later in Romans 5, verse 9, that the fact that we have been saved from the wrath of God's judgment. And so Paul makes this clear in his letter Romans to Romans uh, that, number one, uh, for, those, for, for mankind, wrath is being stored up. But then he goes into the reality that our, we are justified by faith in Jesus. Therefore, because we are justified by faith, we are saved from the wrath of God's judgment. And it's punishment of sin. So we know that Christians are not punished in any way, shape, or form for their sin. Not in this life or even in the life to come. And that's what we rejoice in as followers of Jesus. Uh, there's a story in Luke chapter 16 that Jesus tells his followers about the rich man and Lazarus. And this is a really good example of many examples of what it means to suffer in this life and in the next life. We read the story of the rich man in Luke chapter 16 of this rich man who lived a life of pleasure. And then Lazarus, who was a poor man who had sores on him and dogs were licking his sores. And he was begging to even eat breadcrumbs off the rich man's table. That when, they, when it came for them time to die, it was the rich man, because he lived his life selfishly for himself, he was the one who was in the place of torment. He was the one who was in an internal place of suffering as a result of the pleasures that he enjoyed in his life. Not the fact that it was pleasurable, but because Jesus wanted to get across this idea that his life was to please himself. So it wasn't the sin wasn't that he, that he experienced pleasure. The sin was that he wanted to please himself. That was his heart. And we see the humility of the poor man, of, of Lazarus that although he endured much suffering in his life, it did not mean that he was going to endure suffering in the life to come. He was carried off by the angels, it says, to Abraham's side to be a child of God, to inherit the inheritance of Abraham, to be a descendant of Abraham, where he will later then experience eternal glory that we are going to experience when we die and in our faith is in Christ. So that's one example of what it looks like that uh, suffering in this life doesn't, uh, uh, doesn't uh, have a, any any uh, implication of where you're going to be in eternity. Everyone's going to suffer at some point in this life. The key is, are our hearts geared towards pleasing ourselves or pleasing the God who loves us? We see that in Revelation 20, you know, this place of torment, that death and Hades, is going to be thrown into this, into hell, uh, into the lake of fire with all the devil and his angels. And we get this clearer picture that suffering is going to be reserved for eternity. That suffering is the punishment of sin is going to be reserved for after we die. So our suffering in this life, once again, is not a form of punishment, because we know that God is reserving His wrath, reserving His punishment for the day a person dies and for His eternal judgment upon them. Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew mentions uh, the that's place of suffering, extreme suffering as a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth Uh, extreme sadness and extreme anger all at the same time for eternity. That's the kind of suffering that's going to take place in eternal punishment Many times, weeping and gnashing of teeth might describe a family's bedtime routine when they put their young kids to bed. There's crying and there's wailing and there's anger and there's people yelling at each other and they don't want to go to bed and they're angry at us. And and you're literally, it's like a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth until they finally fall asleep. And to me, that's just a a very humorous way of looking at something so serious in the Christian faith. Is this reality that there's going to be extreme anger and extreme sadness? For those who die in their sins. So I hope that we see, when we look at our own suffering, that if we've ever, if you've ever been tempted to look at your suffering as a form of punishment from God, number one, if you're a believer, you know that's not true for you because of what Jesus has done for you. You can rejoice in that, that God is not punishing you for your sins. That would defeat the whole purpose of the cross. For anyone who's not a believer... We pray that they come to this realization that there is a fear that they should have of the punishment that's going to come to them in their life. There's this also understanding of punishment that maybe God's punishing us because of what someone else did. Maybe God's punishing us because of what my father did or what my mother did or what our ancestors had done. Uh, many times uh, Christians in America might think that we're experiencing generational sin because of maybe what uh, uh, earlier Americans have done in the past. And we, we uh, Christians could often see it as a maybe God's punishing us for things that other people did. And that can't be true either. Jesus died as a atoning sacrifice for the sin of the one who believes. The nation of Israel got this confused sometimes. They had this saying where they would say, Our fathers ate sour grapes, and our children's teeth are set on edge. In other words, they they, they had this idea that God is punishing them for sins that their forefathers did, that their generations did. And, and because they ate these sour grapes, their children's teeth are the ones suffering for it. It's their children's health that is suffering for it. And they didn't think that literally, but that was their picture that they had of our father ate. Our fathers ate sour grapes, and it's our children's teeth that are now set on edge. And God corrected them in Ezekiel 18. He said, you will no longer use this saying, because I'm going to set it straight right here and now in Ezekiel 18. It's the soul who sins shall die. In other words, the person that dies, they die because they were responsible for their own sin. And he said this to them while they're in exile, because they were being punished for Uh, 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 what was happening in that time they rebelled against God and now they found found themselves in exile and people are wondering why they're there well they were still rebelling against God so God makes this clear throughout scripture John chapter 9 there's a story of the man who was born blind and people ask Jesus who was it that sinned? was it this man's parents or was it him that sinned that caused him to be blind? and Jesus said is neither But he was born blind so that the works of God may be displayed in him. So as far as suffering being a type of punishment, we know that uh, it's not true throughout Scripture. God does not punish sin in this life. Another form of viewing our suffering might be a type of, maybe it's a consequence. And we know that this could be true as well because God created consequences to be a part of life. He created us with emotions where you could predict for in general, how someone will react to someone else based on how they treat one another. This is why uh, the law of attractiveness is, is is so popular in our in our culture, the New Age religious culture, that if you treat people this way, you're guaranteed to be treated this way. Well, you're not guaranteed any of that, but the generality is true because God created man with emotions and, and a brain to where we naturally and generally respond a certain way when we're treated a certain way. You go out and drive home from church and try honking at everyone that you're stopped behind. See what happens, right? So we know that this is true, that there are such things as consequences. And we know that consequences are non-discriminatory. In other words, consequences happen regardless if you're a believer or unbeliever. If there's a hot stove, it doesn't matter if you're a Christian or a a non-Christian. If you touch the hot stove, you're going to get burned. If you're a Christian, you're not going to be miraculously saved from being able to touch, touch hot coals and walk on hot coals. It's, n- it's not like that. We know that consequences are unbiased, they're non discriminatory. Christians who have issues in their, relational issues in their marriage, will suffer a lot of times the same consequences that non Christians will have if they have relational issues in their marriage. Christians and non Christians are susceptible to divorce, Christians and non Christians are susceptible to committing adultery in their marriages. So being a Christian has no uh, uh, implication on whether or not we will experience the consequences of our actions. God created the world to to operate in a certain way to where we could generally predict what's going to happen. We see some biblical examples of this. Abram and Hagar and Sarah in and, and Genesis when they really wanted a kid and it wasn't happening between Abram and Sarah. Well, his, I, the, Sarah's idea was, well, sleep with my maid Hagar and we'll have a kid. And guess what? It worked. But then, guess what? It caused friction in their marriage. Imagine that. There was jealousy after that. They were experiencing the consequences of their actions. It was not a form of punishment by God. God created them to have emotions and connections emotionally with one another, between a husband and wife. And having a child with another woman ripped a a tear right in that relationship. We see that in today's examples of any kind of immoral sexual relations, uh, that you know, oftentimes when people have uh, unexpected pregnancy, and this is uh, not intentional, but this comes at a timely fashion. With uh, what's been passed, thankfully, with the, the new abortion laws in some of the states of, of outlawing uh, abortions for the most part. Thankfully, uh, we'd like to see a total eradication of abortion that would be uh, glorifying to God. But anytime there's an unexpected pregnancy, many times the only consequence those people will think of is the pregnancy itself. They're not thinking about uh, the, the consequences, the fact that they, that they are creating a more difficult relationship with one another. A lot of times they don't consider it a consequence that, they're, that they are going to make it more difficult uh, uh, on their own finances or what are they going to do in the future, who's going to have the kid, do they even want the kid. Many times... When people have an unexpected pregnancy, and especially unbelievers, the only consequence they tend to focus on is the pregnancy itself. And that's a tragedy. Lot and his daughters is another good example of of simple consequences that happened for their actions. Lot was a man who, when he fled from the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, his daughters were with him, and they were the only ones that got saved. Their husbands died, and and Lot's wife had died. And the, the daughters... Great plan, once again, uh, is not great at all. They wanted to get their dad drunk because they feared that their family would not survive, and so they wanted to have kids. And their idea was the only way to make their continue on their lineage was to have children with their father. Knowing that their father would not approve of this, they got him drunk. What happened? He slept with both his daughters and had children with both his daughters. See, that was not a punishment from God on to Lot. It was a consequence of what happens when you get drunk. So we see that today. There's plenty of drunkenness to look at this example in this world of what happens from the consequences of those who fall into drunkenness. Last one, last example is dealing with a guilty conscience. Judas is another good example of this. When he betrayed Jesus and he later had remorse for it so much that he hung himself. He wanted to give the money back that he had made by, by telling the Pharisees and the, uh, the high priest where Jesus was hiding. He tried to give the money back and they wouldn't take it. He said, it's yours. And he ended up hanging himself. Sometimes the consequences of our actions look in the way of the guilt that we deal with based on what we had done. That feeling guilty over something or feeling broken over something is, is many times could be a consequence of because of what we had done. So we know that sometimes our suffering can be caused or is a result of a consequence. We could look back at our various different kinds of sufferings and say, you know what? I know that that happened because I did this. But that's not always the case, and we know that too. There's a third way of viewing our suffering, and that's God's, is viewing suffering as a form of God's discipline. So, so one might ask the question, okay, God, you have me in this place of suffering. Maybe this man asked when he was sick for 38 years, okay, God, what are you trying to teach me? And we know that this can be true as well, of this idea that God is trying to teach us something through our suffering. And when we say God's discipline, it's not so much like a slap on the wrist and saying, no, you are wrong, uh, don't do that anymore. Now, discipline means to teach or to correct or to train someone. And so when, when, with God's discipline, not only comes with a, a correction, which oftentimes will be painful because it's painful to our hearts. The fact that God's word will always come in disagreement with our own sinful nature. That's the pain that we deal with. But it's going to correct us into what is good and what is holy. So this is God's discipline. And so, God's discipline, we have to make this clear, is that when God disciplines us, it's not the suffering in itself. It's the conviction that comes and occurs in the believer's heart. That's the discipline. Someone could get in a car rash, a car crash. Car wow, that sounds painful. Uh, you have something more painful is a car crash. It might, might cause a rash. Uh, if you get in a car crash, maybe it was a result of careless driving. Well, you know what? If they didn't, if they're a Christian, or it doesn't matter who they are, forget I said that part, if they get in a car crash because of careless driving, if they didn't learn anything from it and they weren't convicted of anything, they weren't disciplined by God. They didn't learn anything from it. In the Hebrews, we know that God disciplines his children as a father disciplines his own son. And, And so in that we rejoice when we experience God's correction, we are being corrected in a way that's affirming and confirming that we are a child of God. See, for those who go through suffering and don't learn anything from it, they're not being disciplined by God. And the implication is that they are not a child of God. If they're not learning anything, any, any spiritual truth from it, any, if they're not gleaning any wisdom from God from their suffering, then they're not being disciplined through it. And if they're not being disciplined as a, as a father disciplines their own son, then they're not a son or a daughter. So, God's discipline is not the suffering itself. Anyone could go through a period of suffering and not learn anything from it. God's discipline is conviction that occurs in a believer's heart where they understand what they had done wrong. Or they understand what it is that God is trying to teach them through this suffering. So we know that this can happen. Uh, Why does God discipline us? Well, he disciplines us that we might share in his holiness. It tells us that in Hebrews 12. Why does God teach us and correct us? Because he wants us to share in his holiness. That is the path that we are on as Christians. For those he called, he justified. Who those he justified, he will glorify. And so growing our faith is not measured by things like how happy we are. How happy you are has no indication of your spiritual growth or the, your spiritual maturity. Uh, your confidence as a human being, the fact that you're a confident person, you could speak in front of people or you could go out on the streets and, and make a spectacle of yourself and not even care what people think, that is not a sign necessarily of spiritual maturity or spiritual growth. Uh, worldly success is not a sign of, of uh, how much you've grown spiritually. Popularity, how popular someone is, that's not a sign of how spiritually mature they are. The ability to perform miracles or prophesy and, and heal people that's not even a sign of spiritual maturity. Paul says that, that if you could you could do those things and not be mis, not be mature at all because you could do those things and not even show the love of God, which he says is like clinging symbols to a person's ears. So that's how if that's not how we measure it, how do we measure it? We measure it by growing in holiness. God says in Leviticus be holy for I am holy. Jesus reiterated that be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And so Growing in our faith means growing in forgiveness, growing in loving one another as Christ loved you, growing in your obedience to God, growing in your abstaining from sin, growing in your generosity towards God and towards others, growing in your, uh, uh, your faithfulness and preaching the gospel. Those are better indications on what it means to be growing in your faith. What is God teaching you in your suffering? Well, are you growing in holiness? are growing in obedience to the word of God. Here are some kinds of suffering that might God, that that might God might use to discipline us or teach us. If you're someone that's going through depression, maybe God's trying to teach you to seek fulfillment in him. If you're going through physical pain, maybe God's trying to teach you contentment and reliance upon him for strength. If you're dealing with relational issues, whether it's with friends or marriage or anything else, maybe God's trying to teach you something about reconciliation or forgiveness or seeking godliness in your relationships. Many times Christians will have best friends who are not even Christian. And when they're going through tough issues, they won't be going to Christian friends. They'll be going to non-Christian friends. Maybe if you're dealing with loss, maybe God is trying to teach you to seek true true treasure that's in heaven. And if you're being persecuted for your faith because of your faith in Christ, maybe God's trying to teach you to remain faithful to him. Those are just different examples of how God might be using our suffering as a form of teaching and correcting us. Remember, the discipline is not the suffering itself. The discipline is the conviction of the believer's heart. It's what you learn from it. It's the wisdom that you gain from God from that suffering. That's the discipline. It's not the suffering. Last thing, and we'll be done. This is the most important one. So we know that suffering is never punishment. Suffering is sometimes a consequence. And suffering is sometimes discipline. But with something else that suffering is always, each and every time for the believer, it's always a trial. Why do we have trials? James 1 tells us is to test a person's faith. Why do people take tests? Is to prove their knowledge of something, right? If someone's taking a driving test, it's to prove that they know how to drive. If someone's taking a math test, it's to prove that they know the material. And so for, the, for spiritual tests, these are only applicable to those who profess Jesus Christ. For the unbeliever and those who know that they're unbelievers, they have no need to, for a spiritual test because they, they're not professing to know anything. But for those who profess faith in Christ, well, now there's a failure and a a passing grade on a test. That Jesus said that just because someone professes to know me, just because they said Lord, Lord, does not mean that they actually belong to the Lord. So we know that just because someone professes to be a Christian doesn't mean that they are a Christian. So what spiritual tests do is like any other test, tests have two purposes for it. They reveal if something is true or false, and they also reveal weaknesses. See, for the false fraudulent Christian who masquerades as a Christian, but they really have no concern for the things of God, the spiritual tests in their life will reveal to them and possibly others around them that they are a false Christian. These tests have no uh, no meaning for God because God knows everyone's hearts. The meaning is for the test results are really for them to know. In In their day of judgment, when their suffering, eternal suffering comes as a punishment for their sins, all the evidence of their spiritual tests is going to stack up against them as evidence against them as being a fraudulent believer in Jesus. And they will have no uh, uh, way to refute it in front of God. For the true believer, the spiritual tests are just going to reveal weaknesses in their faith. It's not that they're not a Christian. It's revealing, here are the areas where I'm trying to teach you and discipline you so that you might be more mature in your faith. So remember, spiritual tests are for all those who profess faith in Christ. They reveal if they're true or fake. But for the true ones, for the true believers, they will reveal their weaknesses and where they could grow spiritually. Uh, we see three different kinds of spiritual tests. One is trials. The other is temptations that we'll face. The third is God's truth. It is the spiritual tests are going to test, how is this person going to respond to the various trials that, they, that occur in their life? To the various kinds of suffering that occur in their life, uh, how is this person going to respond to it? Are they going to continue to seek God's wisdom in those trials, or are they going to seek their own wisdom and seek other solutions to it? The second spiritual test in James chapter 1 is temptation. How will a professing believer respond to the various temptations in their life? Are they going to be constantly giving in to sin, to where they, they seemingly have no remorse and no, no repentance over the sin in their life, and they're just living freely on their own, thinking that they're saved? Or are they going to be repenting and and putting their faith and reliance upon Christ and and learning what is good and holy? And the third spiritual test is how are those people going to respond to the word of God? Are they going to adhere to the word of God? Are they going to seek counsel through the word of God? Are they going to receive the word of God as God's truth to them? Or are they going to disagree with what the word of God says about them and how they should be living their life? The parable of the the sower uh, 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 describes this perfectly. And when Jesus says that the the sower who sows a seed, the seed is the word of God that's being thrown out. And the different kinds of soils are the different kinds of people. And and there's only one soil, one kind of person, to where the word of God uh, actually uh, produced a true believer is the good soil, that those... Uh, they were not drowned out by the temptations and the trials and the suffering in this life, but they endured and they produced fruit because of the word of God that was implanted in them and that they were were rooted in the word of God. That parable alone has all three of those spiritual tests. How a person responds to trials, temptations, and the word of God in their life. Before we close, there's just a quick reminder that not all trials are painful. Not all trials need to be suffering. Some trials come in the form of blessings. Some trials come in the form of our wealth. How is a professing believer going to respond to the things that God has given them by his grace? How is this person going to respond when God gives them a certain amount of money or gives them the job that they've always wanted or gives them uh, the healing that they sought out like this man in the story, which we're about to get to? See, sometimes a trial comes in the form of an extreme blessing from God. Are they going to acknowledge God? Is it going to cause them to to turn to God and rely on him to live a life, to not sin anymore, to live an obedient life to God? Or is this extreme amount of blessing from God going to cause them to just focus on the blessing? See, that's the dilemma that this man now has, who is healed after being sick for 38 years. The temptation that we could speculate, the temptation, imagine, uh, I I think uh, we don't have to imagine too much if people have been through enough suffering in this this room alone, that when you are freed all of a sudden from the suffering that you've endured for so long, what's the temptation there? I want to do this now. God owes this to me. I deserve to do this with my life. Or God owes this to me. Or I owe this to myself or I should be allowed to do this with my life now because I've spent, I've lost so much time suffering. Sometimes the trials come in the forms of blessing. How is the professing believer going to respond to the blessings that God gives to them? Are they going to be self-centered in that blessing? Or are they going to give it back to the Lord and realize that it is him who gave that blessing to them? And there's a greater blessing that God wants to give people that is eternal life through faith in Christ. So Jesus says, do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. This man being a Jewish man would have known that this meant live an obedient life to God. He knows that Jesus is not saying live a perfect life from here on out. No, to live an obedient life to God meant that even when you did wrong, you did the things that you were supposed to do when you did something wrong. Bringing your sacrifices to the Lord, offering up your, your sin offerings and everything else being cleansed of your unrighteousness. So he's really saying, live to please the Lord. This Jewish man would have understood that. Here's a poor man who becomes healthy, or a sick man who becomes healthy. For the homeless man who gets a home, or the poor person becomes rich, how are they going to respond to those blessings? This guy has two options from here on out. Jesus is warning him, Essentially saying, you know those 38 years of suffering? Something worse is going to happen to you if this doesn't change your life. The judgment of God is going to come upon you. If this miraculous healing that I just gave you, if this doesn't change your life, there is something far worse than being severely ill for 38 years, the majority of your life, coming to you. And Jesus is pleading him to live his life to please God instead of himself. Those are this man's two options. What is he going to do with this being freed from this suffering? And we all have that same trial that occurs in our lives. What do we do with the blessings of God? What do we do with the suffering in our life? Let's close in prayer. Lord, we thank you. As believers, we can thank you for suffering. James 1 says, consider it all joy. And the reason is because we know that the testing of our faith is for our own good. That in the end, we get to see the things that we've endured. Looking back in our life, we get to see the things that, with your help alone, we have persevered through. Where your, where your faithfulness did not fail us. So we rejoice in the sufferings that we endure as Christians. All forms of it. Because as true believers in Jesus, we know that that we are f- going to be free from all suffering at the end of this life. That being eternal glory is the greatest blessing being forgiven of, forgiven of our sins is the greatest blessing because of what it results in. It results in the freedom from all suffering. So we thank you for being the, the ultimate healer in our lives. We pray for anyone in this room who coming in this morning, maybe, maybe their faith is not in Jesus. We pray for anyone in this room that their faith would be in Christ alone, that he died for their sins, so they could be forgiven, so that nothing worse happens to them.